0: Welcome, I'm Paul Bishop, your host for this Six-Gun Justice conversation segment. These are bonus downloads where my co-host Richard I get to hang around the virtual Six-Gun Justice podcast water cooler, talking with friends and fellow writers who are also fans of the Western genre. With me today is editor extraordinaire Gary Goldstein. Since 2003, Gary has been in charge of the Western program at Kensington Publishing, helping to make Westerns their top-selling category. He first entered the book publishing biz in 1988 as an associate editor with Bantam Books. Since then, he has worked at both Pocket Books and Penguin before beginning his long tenure with Kensington. Under Gary's guidance, his authors have won more than a dozen Spur Awards from the Western Writers of America. Hello, friend, and welcome to the Six-Gun Justice podcast.
1: Hello, Paul. Thanks for having me.
0: We met at the Western Writers of America Conference. The last one that they held, I guess that was 2019, because 2020 went down the drain like everything else.
1: Yes, unfortunately.
0: Ezero, <laughs> <laughs> a... I read that you grew up in Long Island, New York. Is that where you first discovered the love for Westerns?
1: Yeah, pretty much. I've got my father to thank for that because he was a huge fan of Westerns, John Wayne movies. He had a lot of Zane Grey and Owen Wister books, so whenever there was a Western on, he would make me watch it, because at that time, I was really into horror movies, but they would wake me up at 3 a.m. screaming, so my mother said, look, make him watch a Western, maybe he won't scream in the middle of the night, (laughs) so it stuck.
0: It was a good antidote.
1: Yes, it actually worked to a degree. Of course, in the middle of the night, I'd sneak out and turn on the thing with two heads, and. Um... <laughs> <laughs> And he showed me, for some reason, it stayed with me all these years, The Common with John Wayne, I believe, Stuart Whitman. And I really enjoyed that one. And then not too long after that, he showed me The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which I thought was fantastic. But the one that really turned me on was Shane, I have to say. That had everything. And then I took the book out of the library. It was 128 pages. I read it in two sittings. And as a matter of fact, I think I still have it. I never did return it. I must owe them a lot of money
0: must be a warrant out for your arrest at this point. I'm sure, yes. Library police. (laughs) A lot of people point to Shane as a big influence in their reading of Westerns. It seems to have had a major impact both as a film and as a novel. Did you ever read anything else by Schaefer, such as Monty Walsh?
1: As a matter of fact, I did read Monty Walsh after I saw the movie, which I actually paid to see. And uh, that one was good. That was Jack Schaefer was good. As a matter of fact, I tried to acquire Monty Walsh and Shane for Kensington, but uh, the deal, for one reason or another, the deal just never quite took off, much to my regret. So, yeah, Shane, uh, Jack Schaefer is the one who got away.
0: The big fish, right? We all have the our white fish. whales.
1: Yes. I put the searchers back into print and that had been the Alan LeMay had been out of print for years. And at the time it was this was when I was at Berkeley in the nineteen nineties, and apparently we still had the rights. They had never reverted back to Harper, then Harper and Row, whatever they were called, Harper Collins. So I threw that and the unforgiven back into print for Berkeley. And as it turned out, we released Alan LeMay's The Unforgiven literally around the same time as the Clint Eastwood movie with the same title came out.
0: Which had nothing to do with each other.
1: No, but people thought it was a tie and they bought it hand over fist. Never had a single complaint.
0: It's a great book. It's a flip side to The Searchers, which is very interesting from a writer's point of view. I can see what's going on in Schaefer's head as he just reverses the situation from The Searchers and gives us another dynamic telling of uh, emotional storyline.
1: It was quite a good book. Shane, of course, is still the standard bearer.
0: Did English or reading play an influence in your early schooling?
1: they tried i'll tell you I, I was not a huge reader until i got into i guess it was seventh or eighth grade because i had a very good english teacher may rest in peace mr Vinci. he introduced us to i remember one of the things we read was a light in the forest by conrad ripter which i thought was i really liked it who decides a classic is a classic that was always the question because one of the other books we had to read was my friend Flicka*. Now, ordinarily, uh, I'm sure it's a very good book. I read it. It wasn't poorly written or anything, but you have to understand where I grew up, my classmates were in large part second and third generation Italian, Irish, and they were one generation removed either from the old country or from Brooklyn or the Bronx. So it was hard for them to really relate to a young boy and his pony. I remember one of my friends, who was Italian. This is probably not for public consumption, but we're in the cafeteria because I don't understand. What's with
0: this fucking horse? Why do he go out and steal the car? All kids do. <laughs> you know. Environment dictates, doesn't it?
1: It did in this case, yes. We should have been reading Last Exit to Brooklyn, but that was taboo in those days.
0: <laughs> and I think that's a result of one-size-fits-all approach to education.
1: Yes, that's very true.
0: The books that I see kids being forced to read, The Scarlet Letter, for instance, why in the world are they reading The Scarlet Letter today? There's so much better books that are going to keep them reading. You're going to kill a non-reader's ever reading if you make him read The Scarlet Letter.
1: That was part of the problem. When I was 15, we left Long Island and moved to Hollywood, Florida, which is south of Fort Lauderdale. And the required reading there was even more bizarre. They gave us a human bondage by some of some mom, Oh, my. Which I enjoyed. But again, dare I say, these mouth-breathing rednecks I went to school with, they couldn't quite wrap their minds around it. So I offered to bring in some of my dad's Mickey Spillane collection, but they declined with gracious thanks.
0: I am a big fan of Somerset Mond's The Razor's Edge. In fact, it's one of my favorite books and played a very influential part in my life. But it's only with rereadings that I've come to understand the full impact of that book over the years. In high school, if I had read of Human Bondage, that it would have had the same impact that it would have done maybe 10, 20 years later.
1: Yes, exactly. Because when you're in ninth grade, it's hard to really wrap your mind around one man's obsession with a prostitute. It's not something we had to deal with on a daily basis. I think I was the only one who really enjoyed it. Plus, I could speak in an English accent, so the teacher made me read it aloud, whether there was dialogue. Bug off, do you think I care whether you think I'm a gentleman or not? And my classmates loved it. I think that was the only way they absorbed any of it.
0: It was a whole production for you then?
1: Yes, it was in a way, yeah.
0: Obviously, you liked of human bondage, which is interesting when you said your other classmates didn't. What influenced your decision to enter the publishing business? Was it this understanding of literature?
1: No, no. Nobody really enters the publishing game by choice. People fall into it, at least in my case. I fell into it. I always had my set on a career as a writer. But then, one way or the other, I got my first job in New York. This was 1976. I got a job writing novels, one a week. They were, shall we say, adult novels. They were about 40,000 words. You had four days to knock them out, and they paid you $130 per book. And, of course, you didn't have any rights or anything. So for every five people, maybe one of them would make it past the first week. I was 21. When you're 21, sleep matters less. Eat your fruit matters less. So it's like a great opportunity. till that day, I'd never written anything. I really learned a lot. And then from there, I just kind of fell into the industry.
0: It was pretty good money for those days.
1: Rent was 90 bucks a month. A loaf of bread was $0.49. Relatively comfortable living in those days.
0: What was your first impression as an associate editor? Did you know what you were doing? Were you watching anybody else? And was it general books that you were looking at, or were you into the genre books even then? No, I was hired at Bantam because I had been a production editor
1: at Crown. This was before Crown became a big part of Penguin Random House. Crown was just a solo entity in those days, and I got hired as a production editor because I had production experience. After about six months, the division I was working for folded, so I found myself out of a job. And then Greg Tobin, who was one of the editors of Bantam, somehow... I can't remember. Somebody recommended me. I don't think, other than Shane, I really, the only Westerns I had read were Elmore Leonard's because I was a huge fan of his crime novels. I read short stories, and I read Valdez is Coming, and what have you. And that's kind of what convinced them that maybe I actually knew what I was doing. But the truth of the matter is, I didn't know that much. So I learned as we went along, I cut my teeth on a line of books that Doubleday used to publish, the Doubleday Western. I think some of your listeners may remember those. It was a library hardcover Western every single month. We used to grind them out, three, four 4,000 copies, whatever it was, and they went directly into libraries at a few trade sales. I don't really remember, but that's where I got to know the genre. And then some of the paperback guys that Bantam was publishing at that time, there was Max Evans and Elmer Kelton, Don Smith. I really learned from the bottom up. And I was there less than two years when Berkeley came a call, and this would have been 1990. And they offered me a full editorship and an office and what have you, and I jumped at the opportunity. And then I was doing adult Westerns over there. Long Arm, Lone Star, Jake Logan, Gunsmith, one a month. So those was four books automatically every month, and that was in addition to some of the other Westerns. When I look at Wolfpack's website and I see all the books there, I said, Jesus, I can see my whole career from here. Because a lot of the books that he's got on his list were books that I published at Berkeley years ago.
0: And it's interesting how there's still a market for that type of writing.
1: It's still, for us anyway, it's still a growth category. We, We sell a million a year, at least, sometimes more. That's crazy. That's just print.
0: The interesting thing here for me is Western fans, they're very silent. It's hard to find the Western audience. They don't speak up a lot. But between what you're doing at Kensington, what Signet is doing with the Ralph Compton brand, what we're doing at Wolfpack, what's happening on the internet with independent writers, there's a ton of Westerns that are being published and selling. So there's got to be new fans out there. There can't be all old men sitting around in rust homes reading Westerns.
1: There's some crossover, too. A lot of the readers for Westerns are women, maybe some a little older, maybe 50-plus. And that kind of surprised me. But Johnstone, we get a lot of letters from women, the Johnstone fans, and they love them. And I assume somebody passed the torch to the younger generation. You know, And listen, you really like it or not, Walmart has been a huge help. Barnes & Noble, eh, not so much. But Walmart is where we sell them. I mean, that's no, there's no two ways about it. That's the market right now. That's where you find them.
0: And that's where the audience shops.
1: And that's where the audience shops, exactly. So it was twenty years ago, blue we from Walmart. The late Dusty Richards took me into my very first Walmart in Arkansas when I went for one reason or another. This would have been about nineteen ninety one, I think. I was a little nervous because I'd never been to Arkansas. All I knew was what I'd seen on TV. And I said, Dusty, they're not going to be waiting for me at the airport with a burning cross because if that's the case, I'm not coming. Dusty said, they don't care about your religion. They just want to know if your money's clean. And I said, yeah, it's clean. He said, all right, come on over. That'll work. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Aside from Westerns, you also worked with a lot of action-adventure series.
1: Yes, that was at Berkeley. We did a lot of them. I mean, that action adventure, the series books, all the publishers did them because that's when mass market was king.
0: And the series was king.
1: The series was king. And I remember we had seven or eight going on at the same time. Hey, Hunter and I was doing a few, and the other editors were doing a few, and they were keeping the lights on. But then the market changed drastically, and certainly since 1997 when I left Berkeley. And somewhere along the line, when I got to Kensington in 2003, and the action adventure was on its last legs. We published out the last few that we had, and that was it, at a category length. Now I do military Tom Clancy-esque thrillers with guys like Mark Cameron, Anthony J. Tata, and, and the Rip Rawlings. That's a tough market right now. The pandemic hit us, for sure, and ironically, it didn't really affect the westerns that much, but it did affect a lot of thrillers, and not just the male-oriented thrillers, but the female-oriented thrillers, which is almost, you paint by numbers, a female FBI agent teams up with a burnt-out alcoholic ex-detective, NYPD detective, and hunt for a serial killer. We had bigger problems, frankly, the pandemic, for one thing. But even before that, the numbers were starting to sag a little bit. They came back. But when you're worried about waiting online for groceries when they're only letting six people at a time, the least of your worries are a serial killer.
0: Contemporary thrillers suffer from the fact the pandemic had changed everything. People turned to Westerns or continued with the Westerns because it was true escapist reading. There wasn't a pandemic. If
1: you remember, I saw this actually, it was part of a film I saw in high school. It was a film about Marshall McLuhan, and he said something, I never forgot this. He said, well, Westerns, we live in Land because he said, people feel safer living in the past than they do in the present or, God forbid, the future. So it was just natural that we would gravitate. And, and all the Westerns on TV just proved his point. Bonanza, Gunsmoke, Have with Travel. There were so many, and I think some capacity it carried over to books. Because I'll tell you, the Western was on life support when I got to Kensington in 2003. We had a few. We had William Johnstone, is what we had. I noticed that all the other publishers were dropping their lines. Berkeley got out, NAL got out, Harper got out, St. Martin. We were the only game in town. I remember our our founder, Walter Zacharias said the time to move in is when everybody else moves out. I never forgot that either. It was very wide because I doubled the amount of John Stones from 70 a year to 12 a year. Then it was 20 a year, and then it was 22 a year, and now it's up to 35 a year.
0: That's amazing, plus the fact that you also started bringing in other non-Johnstone Westerns.
1: I did, yes. I've got a great, as I call them, the Kensington Posse. I got Sean Lynch, I got Fred Cockburn, I got Pete Branville, Chuck West, For My Money, the Cream of the Crop.
0: I know you had Terrence McCauley, who's uh, one of my buddies.
1: I still have him. He's still working for me. Terry's an angel, and I love the
0: guy. With these Westerns, and we're talking about living in the past, but it's a past that we want to live in and we want to be excited about it. But ever since Soldier Blue, there's been a trend towards revisionist Westerns that want to expose yeah. the history of the Western genre as fraudulent. How do you deal with the current cancel culture and political correctness creeping into the Western genre? Do you ignore it? Do you acknowledge it?
1: I try to ignore it as much as possible because, frankly, I don't really think Western fans give a rat's behind about cancel culture and woke and, and all the rest of that crap. But yes, it, it has crept in. It's been tried, but I shut it down immediately. I was actually told, go back and look through every single Johnstone Western and every single Western that we still had in print. I had to go in there on a search and destroy mission and find even the smallest things that could be construed as offensive to somebody. I said, you've got to be kidding me. I'm not doing that. I'll leave before I do that. I'm not changing anything. But I see it happening. Was it just Dove Pilkey, whatever his name is, Scholastic just shit-can one of his books? Because there was stuff that wasn't necessarily offensive, but could be perceived as offensive. And that's even more insidious, frankly. I see this stuff happening, and it really, really upsets me. Because that was unthinkable, even 10
0: years ago. It's crazy.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you this, Paul. Even before this was started, I keep the Indian to a minimum because to portray them as like the Comanche or maybe the Apache or some of the other tribes, to, to portray them as they actually were, they weren't choir boys. These guys, they slaughtered everybody. I did a book. They made a movie out of it. I can't remember what the movie was called. Cate Blanchett, Tommy Lee Jones. I, I can't remember. This was at Berkeley, and we you know published it as hardcover. got great reviews, and then I get a call one day from the Book of the Month Club. They were a real power back then. Not so much now, but they could really make or break a book. Well, we like St. Agnes's Stand. That was the name of it. Tom Edson was, but would he be willing to rewrite it? And I said, well, why would you want him to rewrite it? Well, the Eagles are so mean. I said, <laughs> they were Comanche. They were mean. I hit the roof. He says, oh, no, but they cut off the guy's face, and they cut off his nose, and they cut off his tongue. And they, I'm not going to ask the author. Who would have refused anyway? But I'm not even going to ask him to tone that down. That violence? You well, can't
0: rewrite history. Yeah, even if you hide it, it's still there. It's still history.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to clean things just to please for political correct. I don't know if you've ever seen a movie called "Osana's Raid" from 1971. Yes. Okay. Now, do you remember what they were patchy? What they do to some of those, those settlers?
0: Oh, absolutely. I
1: mean, it, was, it was that movie was brutal
0: for the time, yeah. especially with Bert For the time, especially
1: yeah. a guy sticks the gun in his mouth and blows his own head off rather than get captured by the Apache. These guys are. That was based on fact, even if it was really a you know a Vietnam War parable. But still, so rather than start something I can't and will not compromise, so it's just really a little easy to just leave the Indians alone. We use them, you know, they do pop up and they are mean, as are the Mexican banditos, and can't ignore it. I will use them in some books, but. And then the Civil War, there's something I stay away from also, because Civil War buffs are fanatical. If you get one detail wrong, forget it. There's so many ways, there's so many aspects of the Civil War, excuse me, the War of Northern Occretion, are open to some debate. You have somebody making a Johnny Cake and they get it wrong. <laughs> got to help you. So You're going to hear about I know, it. I know the Civil War completely. Post-war, yes, you know, most of our protagonists are veterans of the Civil War, but the war is over. The time period is usually 1870 through like 1900, there's plenty of stories left in those 30 years, and that's the time period that I, I like to focus on. It keeps me out of trouble.
0: With 35 Johnstone books a year, how difficult is it for you to wrangle the carefully selected writers who are continuing the Johnstone brand?
1: The truth is, Paul, I just dangle money in front of them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's a good technique.
1: Yeah, it's worked for me, and I'm very picky about the crew that I use. If I can sign up an author and I know he's good for two or three a year, that's one less thing I have to worry about. And I know, especially guys like, you know, um, I really shouldn't mention any names, but I've got some really good people working on the franchise. Some are Wolfpack authors as well, and I'm sure Mike knows who they are. I've got the best in the business, if I may humbly say so. There was a time when we did talk about maybe putting the ghostwriter's names, like what they're doing with Com- a Ralph Compton novel by, but I really didn't want to do that. I don't think we would have had the same effect, because whether it's just one author, or in this case two authors, J. A and William W., at least well, you know what you're going to get. And if you put the ghost's name on it and they don't like it any more than he does, they're not going to buy them. It would have been a mistake. We discussed this in 2004 when William passed away. I'd known him for years before we were friends. So I knew his style. I knew his likes and his dislikes and his strengths and his weaknesses. And I hired a lot of Ghostwriters on that. This is where Bill may have fallen down on this one. That's what he did. Let this inspire you. That kind of thing. And it worked out beautifully, I have to say. And there's nothing in the industry quite like what we've got with that franchise.
0: You can't argue with success.
1: Except maybe the hardy boys are... <laughs> true, but.
0: Where do you see the Western genre 10 years from now?
1: With any luck, I'll see it exactly where it is today. What's going to change, what has changed, is format. We just went from traditional $7.99 mass market. Maybe you've seen them. We, we have a new format now. It's a bigger trim size, some more words on the pay. The type's a little bit bigger. And they go for $8.99. So what's happening is mass market, which is what I came out of, is changing. First they tried the $9.99s, the bigger paperback edition, but then everybody jumped on the bandwagon, and we killed that. We're trying the $8.99 format, and it seems to be working okay. It's a dollar more, but with the discounts you get at Walmart or on Amazon, I said to Kensington, Look, whatever we price it at, you've got to get change back from a $10 bill. Look, we're charging $4.99. No, pick it $4.50. You still get a few cents back from your five. Now it's got to get some money back on your 10. <laughs> Once we go over that, I don't know, I'm not responsible. Now we're trying a lot of Westerns now in trade paperback format, like twelve ninety five, to see if that works. We've run a few exclusively for Walmart. You didn't hear that. And now Sam's Club and B&N, they want a piece of the action now, too. So where it's going in 10 years, I have to be honest, I have no idea. I'm signed up to 2020.
0: It's a healthy genre now, and we hope that it continues to be healthy.
1: It's a growth category for us. As a matter of fact, the most successful category, we're beating out romance in every other category. And I say that with a certain amount of pride. I consider myself literally Viagra. That is, I brought the dead back to life.
0: <laughs> and on that note, Gary, thank you for being with me today. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's great to talk to you again. And hopefully we'll see you at the Western Writers' Convention this year.
1: God willing, I want it to happen.
0: Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the Six Gun Justice website at sixgunjustice.com for information on prior Six Gun Justice conversations, Six Gun Justice speed listens, and full length episodes of the Six Gun Justice podcast, along with regularly updated book reviews, articles, and interviews covering all aspects of the Western genre. Until next time, be kind to others, be kind to yourself, and keep reading Westerns. Adios. We're out of here. Let's ride.